good evening, everybody, um, and welcome to this uh, BTOG webinar. I'm Matt Everson. I'm a chess consultant up in Manchester, um, and it's my pleasure to chair this uh, webinar on masterclass in lung cancer diagnostics. Um, and, and I think it really is a masterclass. We've got three brilliant speakers on three really relevant topics around the pillars, really, uh, of lung cancer diagnostics. Um, I've just got a few slides to go through uh, in terms of housekeeping um, uh, and on behalf of BTOG just to enforce any sponsors of this event or of any BTOG events don't have any role uh, whatsoever in the plan planning uh, that is entirely through the uh, BTOG steering committee. Um, so uh, if there's anything that um, you'd like to ask or anything that comes up from a webinar or anything that's needed for future webinars, uh, for educational needs for uh, across the lung cancer community, please do contact the, the BTOG team um, and Dawn and Jean are incredibly responsive uh, to any queries or asks or anything that we can support with. Uh, so please do uh, contact the team. Um, the, we've, the, we've got three speakers, um, and that'll be about 15 minutes each, uh, which will leave us a good period of time for discussion at the end. I think the topics that we're covering really will create discussion. So please do uh, contribute. I think these, these webinars become at their best when there's really good uh, discussion. So I'll keep an eye on the, the chat function, um, and I'll be posing those questions to our speakers uh, in that discussion at the end. So please do um, uh, contribute to that. Uh, there is a certificate of attendance for your CPD. So after the event, you'll get an email for feedback. Please do complete that in order to receive your uh, certificate. Uh, so we've, as I say, got, got three brilliant uh, topics, three brilliant speakers on some really core areas of, um, uh, of lung cancer care. Uh, so first of all, we're going to hand over to Sam Hare, uh, consultant thoracic radiologist, uh, very well known as an expert in percutaneous uh, biopsy and is also the national specialty advisor for NHS England for imaging. So absolute perfect person to talk to us uh, about, um, about this topic. Uh, so Sam, over to you. Um, thank you, Matt. Um, thanks to BTOG um, for inviting me to speak today. Um, been asked to talk about is preoperative histology in early stage lung cancer the standard of care and feasible to deliver a radiologist view so I could just say yes and wander off because I think um, that is the answer um, but I won't do that I'll show you some slides and um, I don't think this should be a radiologist view I think uh, the answer yes is in my opinion the view of you know oncologists, surgeons, and, and most importantly, patients. And I'll try and talk to you a little bit about why I think that is the case. Um, so these are my disclosures. So, so the first thing to say is, you know, I, I can, the, the, on, on, on the image below, the radiological image, um, I can tell you now that that's an adenocarcinoma. Um, I can tell my MDT that's an adenocarcinoma, but I think in training, um, I've always grown up and in a culture where people always say, well, we need tissue, we need tissue, we need tissue. And um, the problem traditionally has been access to tissue, uh, getting patients in quickly enough to have their lung biopsy, having the lung biopsy workforce challenges that we have, having the bed capacity challenges that we have. Just want to talk you through this slide because it's one of my favorite slides. So where, where as a radiologist, where I put my needle matters. Um, so I'm just going to demonstrate that. So if, I, if my needle goes here, which is through the ground glass component of the lesion, if my lesion go, needle goes here through the solid component of the lesion, and if my needle goes here, you know, partly catching the ground glass and partly catching the solid bit of the lesion, I'm going to get my, my histological uh, output from my pathologist is going to be different. So the first one, it will be, they might say that this is adenocarcinoma in situ. The second one, this is invasive adenocarcinoma. And the, this one, this is lipidic predominant adenocarcinoma with a bit of invasive adenocarcinoma component as well. So it's quite important where your needle goes. But I don't think that matters. If you get any of these um, histological outputs, the radiology is not in doubt. This is an adenocarcinoma. But what it does do is for clinicians, particularly oncologists and even surgeons, it allows you to tell your patients that yes, actually, I'm not going to assume that a photograph image of your lung is a cancer. 
but I can definitively tell you it's an adenocarcinoma and this type of cancer. And you, you inform the patient much more and they might then be much more confident in making a decision on whether, they, you know, whether they're going to have saber or, or surgery or, or lung radiofrequency ablation, um, et cetera. So I think that's just to show you where the needle goes is important. Um, Traditionally, our biopsy infrastructure has been such that it's led to patients being unable to access quickly, delays to pathways and things. But actually, for the last, I think it's 10 years or so now, you know, and, and there's a growing um, move towards this. It's taken some time, as always, but we're getting there, is this ambulatory lung biopsy model, which slashes your, your time to diagnosis by doing a number of things. So, so the new pathway becomes you achieve, you, you have a referral you do the biopsy, you do a chest x-ray at 30 minutes after the biopsy as in an outpatient fashion. If the patient hasn't got a pneumothorax, you, could, you can send them home with appropriate aftercare advice. Uh, if the patient does develop a pneumothorax, traditionally they would have to come into hospital, have a big underwater seal chest drain, stay in hospital for a long time with a big chest drain, maybe not on a respiratory ward, chest drain falls out, all, the, all these issues that we all know about from everyday life but you can send them home with a Heimlich valve device. Um, so the um, move becomes, actually, if your patient does get a pneumothorax with a lung biopsy, they get to go home anyway. Um, it doesn't really matter. Um, you can do much more biopsies because you're not using beds. You don't have to admit patients to beds to have their biopsy, and then they can't get in for a biopsy because there's no beds particularly pertinent in the era of COVID and ambulatory lung biopsy during the COVID pandemic. So at my trust, we were able to continue because it actually made lung biopsy much safer for the patient because it allowed them to go home after their lung biopsy rather than have to stay in a, in, in a ward, um, you know, next to a, next to a COVID ward in a non-COVID ward with a pneumothorax, et cetera. So it actually allowed us to continue doing lung biopsies throughout the pandemic um, as normal, basically. Um, and you improve the patient experience at a fraction of the cost because you save bed days. This bit of kit isn't that expensive to use. And there's less patient anxiety because, you know, they're at home um, rather than in hospital if they do get a pneumothorax. So that's some of the things about ambulatory lung biopsy. But what it allows you to do as a radiologist and, 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 and to clinicians is be able to say to them, you know, if you get a difficult case like this next to the fissure, big lots of emphysema uh, the mentality becomes can you biopsy this well actually matt um yeah i can have a go uh, i might fail i might not be able to get my needle into this lesion but i'll have a go it doesn't matter that it's near the fissure because even if the patient gets a pneumothorax they're going to go home anyway and we were able to diagnose here a small adenocarcinoma in a patient with an fev1 of um, less than one and this patient had a minimally invasive rats wedge resection because they had tissue proven um, adenocarcinoma um I've tried this many times in MDTs. I put it in my reports. The radiological diagnosis is not in doubt. This is an adenocarcinoma. No one ever believes me. Well, they do believe me, but they say we want tissue. And that's across the board, really. And um, I think my feeling is, yes, you could, you, could, you could maybe put the patient into stereotactive ablative radiotherapy or surgery, direct to surgery. But what if, on the out, what if there's the outside chance that this is something else and it's benign or it's atypical TB? Or what if after Sabre, um, I've been in this situation many times, patient has Sabre, and three years later, I'll be asked in the MDT, oh, the, the patient's in surveillance, but the nodular's grown. Um, what do you think, Sam? And I'll say, oh, what was the tissue, at, what was the tissue before they went for Sabre? And they'll look you know, frantically through the histology results and realize, oh, we didn't take any tissue um, before we gave Sabre last time. And I think if you can provide an infrastructure and the technical expertise to give a patient and, and a clinician a tissue diagnosis before they embark uh, the patient uh, on, on a treatment journey. If that were possible, then I think every patient deserves the chance of tissue diagnosis and every clinician deserves the chance to treat their patient with tissue diagnosis if that's possible. Now, I'm not saying it's possible in 100% of cases, there may be a nodule next to an aorta where you don't wanna put a needle, but actually by and large, um, if you can make biopsy safer by doing ambulatory lung biopsy, you can generally 
have a histological diagnostic rate of over 97, 98% um, in the right hands, which is very good for patients and very informative for clinicians. And I think it helps you have those discussions with patients when you discuss treatment options. Um, so that with this lesion we biopsied and it was an adenocarcinoma and the patient then, then went on to have definitive treatment. But in the knowledge, they, had, they definitely had tissue proven um, cancer. So some of the clinical outcomes as a result of, of, of the ambulatory lung biopsy service are, We've got a pathological confirmation rate in lung cancer of over 92%. Most of the um, 8% that isn't 100% is actually patients declining biopsy or lesions uh, uh, technically not amenable to biopsy. Now, traditionally, um, that might be a, a nodule next to a fissure, but not in, not in that, not in our statistics, because we biopsy nodules next to fissures and stuff. It doesn't it doesn't make any difference because the mentality has shifted to actually we can put a needle into something and get an answer. And the pneumothorax isn't something to be frightened of. It's something that can actually very, very easily be treated in an outpatient setting. Um, we haven't done a frozen section at our trust for many, many, many years. Um, that's important because frozen section is essentially doing a lung biopsy under a general anesthetic. And it's expensive because operating time is expensive. And if you can avoid frozen sections, you can do much, much more operative surgery, curative surgery. Um, we can do our lung biopsies very quickly. You know, we don't have a big delay. We can do them. Sometimes you can even do them on the same day if the patient's got a big mass and, and, and they haven't got, um, they're not on warfarin or blood thinner. So we, we do about 16 lung biopsies a week with inpatients on top, which is, which is quite a lot of lung biopsies. And that means we, we, we very rarely have a biopsy backlog and, and the throughput of patients is very quick. Um, and you can achieve early lung cancer diagnosis with cost savings. I've been asked, you know, I've shown this slide before and I've been asked, why do, you, why do you say you can achieve earlier lung cancer diagnosis? Actually, there's two reasons. One is that you can get patients through the biopsy pathway and therefore the lung cancer diagnostic pathway much faster. But the other thing is you can biopsy smaller and smaller nodules um, because you worried less about the pneumothorax and you're more focused on getting patients a tissue diagnosis. So there's two reasons for that. Um, I've said this for many years, but, but, and I showed this slide, I think five, six years ago at BTOG in Dublin, actually, but we're here now because we are doing targeted lung health checks and lung cancer screening is on the horizon. And I, I think I said this five or six years ago, I think it was, I said, what are we going to do when we're doing all these targeted lung health checks? And we have a population out there in our communities who are told you've got a nodule slash spot in your lung. We don't know what it is. Come back in three months, come back in 12 months, and we'll take another CT scan and another CT scan. At some point, patients are going to need a definitive answer and a tissue diagnosis. And we're only going to make that move from spotting spots in the lung to actual tissue diagnosis once we start to increase our biopsy workforce and radiology workforce to actually give people a tissue diagnosis so you can make informed decisions about um, you know, what, what type of cancer they have or are the nodules benign. AI will also play a part in that. Um, you know, once we move on to more predictive AI, you know, benign versus malignant nodules rather than just picking up nodules. Um, so basically we're in a situation where we do have to think about our biopsy infrastructure. Otherwise we're gonna have a, a lot of people out there with, with nodules in their lungs, but we won't be able to actually give them a definitive diagnosis as to what those nodules are. So we have to think about that. And lastly, my last slide is, I was um, to complete the loop, the, the, we've published clinical data, we, we, you know, we've published histology data, et cetera. But actually, ultimately, we, we work in an NHS with finite resource. So what, is there actually an economic saving to doing um, biopsy and um, giving patients a tissue diagnosis um, in, all, in all cases, uh, if that's your aim, you know, and try and aim for a 0% frozen section rate versus sending them straight to surgery. And actually there is. And partly that's because you save 56 operating hours per 100 lung biopsies you perform. And that's really important because operating time costs between 1,200 to 1,500 pounds an hour, which is the most expensive or potentially the most expensive part of the surgical lung biopsy pathway. Um, and also you, pre you prevent a lot of benign resections. I think a couple of years ago in this country, we had a 16.6% benign resection rate, which was patients who had been sent to surgery because they hadn't had a lung biopsy and hadn't had an operation. And 16.6% of them had benign, uh, benign nodules resected, which is too high in my opinion, if you can 
uh, if you can build up an infrastructure where you can provide that biopsy beforehand. Um, what, what, what this study also showed was there's lower morbidity, lower mortality if you perform ambulatory lung biopsy versus direct to, direct to surgery. You have a happy community of physicians, oncologists, and surgeons. Um, you have happy patients because with tissue diagnosis, they have all the options on the table and they know exactly what is being dealt with rather than a report which says, well, you've got a nodule, it might be malignant, we think it's malignant, we can't tell you exactly what it is, um, you know, what, what sort of treatment do you want? Thank you very much. Uh, brilliant, thanks very much, Sam. Um, so we are going to, as I say, move on through the three speakers and then uh, come in for a Q&A at the end. So uh, we're going to move on and uh, I'm going to introduce uh, Lisa Galligan-Dawson, uh, a colleague of mine in Greater Manchester. Um, and Lisa is the Performance Director for Greater Manchester Cancer Alliance. Uh, and we've been working on a project in Greater Manchester um, relevant to EBUS and relevant to cancer alliances starting to um, understand and manage the capacity and demand for, for specialist cancer diagnostics. That's a perfect topic for a webinar like this. And it's great to have Lisa as a, as a performance director come and talk to us and give her, her view of that process. So thank you, Lisa. Great, thanks, Matt. Um, and thanks for inviting me today. Um, so I'm here to talk about the pilot that we've run in Greater Manchester. Um, but I guess before telling you about the pilot, I just wanted to, to set the scene. Um, so you guys know more than I do um, the importance of um, accelerated pathways and access for patients to um, timely and effective diagnostic procedures. Um, but equity is a real factor in that, and it's something that we've struggled with, certainly in Greater Manchester, um, not necessarily because of COVID. It existed before COVID, um, but COVID has exacerbated uh, many of the problems that were already present. Um, and equity is something that I feel really passionately about, and we wanted to do some work to try and, and make um, equity better for patients in Greater Manchester and focusing that on the specialist diagnostic element of pathways. So from an alliance perspective, um, we started to, to move into a little bit of a different arena when it comes to performance um, and the delivery of transformation in cancer. And I think Greater Manchester is quite advanced in its thinking. Um, and we've been lucky uh, to some degree that the alliance has got a good reputation for delivering improvements and transformation and so when we wanted to explore this as an option we were given the support to um, to move ahead with it and, and actually we play now a pretty pivotal role in developing the way forward for um, for cancer um, we are seen as the go-to organization and the honest broker uh, in terms of challenging some of those performance elements um, but, but I guess performance and, and my role is about making things better for patients. So um, good performance is, is really delivering um, access to effective care and transformation of pathways. So getting it right from a clinical pathway perspective equals good performance. So it's not just about the figures at the end. It's about delivering that, that really good um, pathway for patients. And so COVID has led to problems um, in, in all aspects of, of our day-to-day -day work, as, as you'll all be aware. Um, and really, it's had a significant impact on lung cancer. And so that was our focused area. Um, so moving on to, um, I guess, where, where we started, uh, and it was EBUS. Uh, we did look uh, at CT-guided biopsy, and it was interesting just looking at the presentation before, um, because actually one of the reasons we couldn't include uh, lung biopsy in this pilot was the exact same scenario of inpatient beds that was described and the, the cancellations on the day and not having that consistency and capacity. Uh, and it's interesting that we are trying to move towards that outpatient procedure um, and hopefully the, the future means that, that we can include CT-guided biopsy in these kind of initiatives. But the focus for us in, in this project was, uh, was EBUS. So in terms of the EBUS service in Greater Manchester, we've got five EBUS centres across the, the city and they service 12 hospital trust sites. 
Um, we've got a really good relationship in, in cancer across Greater Manchester. Many people working together to deliver effective performance. Um, but of course, we've got challenges as everybody has. Um, the, the, the waiting times have been variable. Um, access has been variable um, in terms of its resilience. So, um, you know, very, very small services that become really fragile um, and particularly in, in COVID, um, holidays and annual leave are exacerbated by um, absences uh, due to, to increased sickness level. Um, and what we found through um, much of the work that's been done already is that we probably had enough capacity in Greater Manchester to deliver the aspirations of the bus service, but it either wasn't in the right place or at the right time based on where the demand was. So what we wanted to do was to look at how we could deliver eBus better in Greater Manchester. Um, and part of the role of the Alliance allows you to be the honest broker and to put the challenge in uh, where organisations um, need support and perhaps don't want to accept it. Um, and where organisations are protective over their services because they're working really well for their cohort of patients. Uh, we take a role of being able to look at the, um, the, the wider cohort of patients and looking what's best for the majority. So in terms of, of what we were looking to do, it was to find a solution to our e-bus capacity challenges. Um, and I guess we, we challenged ourselves to, to come up with a solution that reduced variation, improved equity, help solve some of the resilience challenge that we had with small and fragile services and reduce waiting times, which is not an easy combination, um, as I'm sure you'll appreciate. And for us, it was really important to make sure that whatever we created improved the experience of care um, for, for patients and, and really give them more choice, more access um, and, and really selfishly from a service perspective, make sure that we use all of the assets fully and most appropriately. So in terms of the vision, we wanted to look at a single EBUS scheduling system for the entirety of Greater Manchester and Eastern Cheshire. One of the key things that we established was um, the frustration of organisations where they made a referral for EBUS and it was handed over, they had no control of that patient's pathway, um, much around um, emailing, chasing for, for dates, results, etc. So we wanted to change that ownership to the referring teams. And what we wanted to do was to create a system where you could see all of the available appointments and all of the waiting times in each of the trusts, so that that cl clinician or the clinical team responsible for the patient had the ability to select in conjunction with patient, the most appropriate appointment for that patient, considering um, histology reporting times, next MDT, et cetera. And we wanted to build in a system that was intelligent. So something that would look at um, what happens if a patient's on anticoag, what happens if we know the patient needs a PET CT, how do we allow enough time um, for the reporting of the PET to be able to align the, the e-bus. And, and in essence, what we wanted to do was to create that improved experience through uh, an accelerated diagnosis um, and really begin to, to shape the vision of working together as a system, providing better care and experience um, and really being able to make sure that we can deliver a service for the future um, that's not reliant on individual operators in individual trusts um, that disadvantage patient groups. So we've run a pilot um, using um, a partner organisation that very helpfully um, helped us to create this system. Um, and it's an, it's an interface and it sits above all of our diagnostic services that run eBus currently, so all of like our endoscopy systems. Um, and actually it was a really small pilot. Um, Matt will tell you that he um, thoroughly expected the pilot to fail to deliver because um, it was limited in terms of its resource uh, and limited in terms of the ability to integrate systems because it was a pilot. There was no proof of concept. So 
we had to rely on um, some elements of um, duplication in scheduling systems. So um, that wasn't certainly ideal, uh, but it has allowed us um, in a pilot to be able to demonstrate uh, what we think is something that we want to, to develop moving forward. Um, we didn't have the ability to, um, to build in the reporting elements in the pilot, but they're all things that we factored in, um, knowing that the pilot was about proof of concept and knowing what the full system would deliver um, as we move forward. And so we introduced this system that allowed referrers to, um, to, to keep control of the patient pathway and to be able to view through this scheduling system all of the available suitable eBus slots for their patient um, with the idea that the navigator would support the patient at the end of a clinic appointment to align um, the eBus appointments uh, with things like the PET and the next MDT. And, and what we did is we opened up capacity. So um, we have uh, a main organisation that delivers much of the eBus capacity across Greater Manchester. And we opened capacity there um, to organisations that traditionally can only refer into one hospital in Greater Manchester. That meant that they had the opportunity to select a variety of patient appointments in conjunction with the patient. Um, yes, it might have offered um, appointments more quickly. Um, it might have offered appointments that mean the patient needed to travel. But that's, that's part of the choice for patients. Are they prepared to travel for these diagnostics? What's the most important aspect for them? Um, and, and because of the success with the initial hospital trusts, um, we actually offered expansion of um, the, the pilot to an, uh, an extra site. Um, they were struggling particularly um, with the, the pandemic at the time. They had one of their two consultants um, that was, was unable to deliver the service and their waiting times had actually gone up to 21 days for an e-bus at that time, which is just unacceptable when the waiting time in other aspects of the city is, is six days. So we opened that pilot up for them to join as well. And actually what it's given us um, is a really good opportunity to test a number of different factors um, within within the system. So this just gives you an example of, of the, the system and, and how it looks for, for the person that's um, referring in. Um, and it gives you a really good opportunity to, to use um, the clinical information and, and, and the patient information appropriately to select the right appointment. Um, one of the, the key benefits of, of the system has actually been the, um, the the lessening of load of, of checking patient information backwards and forwards to check um, data. Um, it's allowed us to, to be able to create um, a system that puts all of the information in mandated um, so that the receiving organisation can process the patient on the first time. Um, so that's a really important aspect and hopefully this just gives you an idea of what that scheduling system looks like. So in terms of the pilot results, it's actually been really exciting and I think it's probably exceeded where we thought we would get to in such a small six-month pilot. Um, but 193 patients used um, the electronic system that we created. Um, it was via a, a system called InfoFlex, which many of you will be aware of. But the eBus waiting times reduced in the participating sites by 21% which is not insignificant when you think of the challenges in delivery. Um, and we actually reduced the variation by 42%. And that for me is probably one of the most significant aspects um, because the equity is just so very important to patients and to be treated fairly um, and not to have postcode lottery depending on where you live and where the EBUS site is. One of the really important things was the um, the results from the patient experience aspect um, you know delivering a reduction in waiting times and variation of course it's important but we wanted to make sure that what we were doing was actually what the patients wanted because we've got so much historical information about um, you know patients don't want to travel uh, it, it's not the right thing for them it's all about care closer to home and of course that's important um, but Things change when you get a diagnosis of something so significant as lung cancer. 
we know already in Greater Manchester, our patients must travel to receive treatment. Uh, we have surgery that's just delivered in one centre uh, and the majority of our oncology is at the Christie. So patients do travel for treatment. Uh, and so it was really important to, to get to the bottom of that. You know, what is the important aspects for patients? And actually 75% of the patients that, that took part in, in this pilot that provided feedback felt that the most important aspect for them was to get access to the earliest possible e-bus, regardless of travelling and regardless of whether that meant that they waited slightly longer for the outcome from an MDT. The anxiety of the procedure was actually the biggest factor for them. 96% of the patients were actually very happy or happy to travel to the hospital where they had their procedure, which again is a really important aspect. Um, and one of the key things that we wanted to do was to understand who had participated in this pilot. And actually 51% of the patients that participated um, did so uh, and came from an area where it was one of the most deprived aspects of Greater Manchester. Um, giving us the, the confidence that patients will travel from all locations. And so I think that, that what we've found is that the waiting times reduced massively. You can see on here um, that we had an overall reduction of 1.8 days. And actually, it reduced in every single site that participated, indicating that the process just improved the, the booking element as well, just reduced that burden. And so for us, we expected it to be a bit like this, patients going all over the place. The reality was they didn't move around quite as much, but just having this system provided um, a more effective process for all of those patients. Um, and actually those that moved around the, you know, the, from those hospitals that would have previously have gone to one site actually benefited the most. Lisa. So for us, Maybe just one more minute or so and then to wrap up. Yeah, yeah, I'm on the last slide now. Well, um, so um, I guess for us, it was a limited pilot, um, but the conclusions are absolutely convincing that this is the way forward for us. Um, what we absolutely want to do now is to look at how we make this a sequential um, approach. So how we link in things like um, CT guided biopsy, perhaps medical thoracoscopy, um, pet into this process so that we can really benefit from um, a single queue approach. Um, so for us, this is potentially the future. Um, there is the capacity to upscale um, and the capacity to move into other tumour sites and other diagnostics as well. Um, so hopefully you found that informative. Very happy to answer any questions that you might have in the Q&A at the end. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Lisa. Um, so we'll move on to our uh, third talk. Uh, Millie Clive is a consultant respiratory physician, uh, a specialist in pleural disease, um, and we've worked together in the, uh, uh, on the pleural specialist advisory group for the BTS. So it's great to have Millie here to talk to us about uh, the pathways in malignant pleural effusions. Millie, thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Matt. And um, thanks so much to BTOG as well for inviting me to speak today. So the topic that I've been given is what is the optimal diagnostic pathway in suspected malignant pleural effusions? Um, I've got no conflicts of interest and I, these are the things that I'm sort of hoping to cover in the next 15 minutes. Um, I thought I'd just touch on the kind of essential criteria for a reactive pleural service, which I think probably mirrors a lot of the essential criteria for a reactive lung cancer diagnostic service some of the challenges that I think plural malignancy has particularly in achieving some of the targets. Um, and then I thought I'd um, base the majority of my talk just on some of the initial investigations, the routine investigations that we perform all the time within plural clinics um, and what we should be doing, when we should be doing them and how we, how we should be doing them. I'm also going to touch on pleural effusion management because I think this needs to run completely alongside the diagnostic process when approaching someone with a malignant pleural effusion. And then at the end, I'm going to give my kind of own proposed pathway. So, as I say, I think this diagram really summarises what's needed for any diagnostic um, cancer service um, to be quick and effective. 
Um, but I think the two things down either side of the um, slide really highlight the additional challenges that we have within plural, uh, malignant pleural effusion. Um, patients have um, pleural effusions which make them feel very breathless so it's not just about diagnosis in this early stage we need to manage their symptoms and we need to make a plan with them about how we're going to manage the fluid as well um, and coming with that requires quite a lot of patient information because we're not talking to them just about uh, one new pathology and potentially one or two new tests that need to be done but um, we're talking to them about how this fluid management is going to impact their quality of life potentially uh, moving forward for quite some time. So a reactive diagnostic plural service, we obviously need uh, radiology expertise, um, advanced and rapid pathology capabilities to turn around cytology and biopsies fairly quickly. Uh, we need access to plural procedure lists in terms of ultrasound, maybe physician-led lists such as thoracoscopy, indwelling pleural catheter insertions and ultrasound-guided biopsies. Um, close links with those other services, thoracics, oncology, palliative care, which are often crucial um, for the patient journey. We need quick and responsive MDT discussion. And I think really vitally, we need um, good um, specialist nurse and admin support to help um, guide someone through their kind of diagnostic journey. And I do think that malignant pleural effusion poses particular challenges when it comes to achieving the um, sort of targets to obtain a diagnosis. Um, traditionally, um, we have taken cytology as our initial test, and that's often very important in order to manage that crisis moment when someone presents very breathless with a large um, malignant pleural effusion. But um, by waiting for those cytology results, we're potentially delaying the biopsy. Um, so, so that adds a potential diagnostic delay. Um, Lisa's talk was amazing about um, booking of e-bus lists and you know I'm sure there's um, a lot of this could be used to improve how we book thoracoscopy lists. Um, I think this is a skill that is um, provided probably by fewer hospitals than um, e-bus and so there's not only um, delays potentially if there's only a weekly thoracoscopy list within a hospital but also the need for referral from other centres into those thoracoscopy centres and really I think unlike EBUS um, a thoracoscopist probably needs to have assessed the patient themselves before they're booked um, a thoracoscopy so that adds an extra delay. I think I've touched on the complexity of addressing pleural effusion management and the diagnostics in parallel, which requires the patient to take on board an awful lot of information and make quite a lot of decisions um, during those, that kind of initial presentation. Um, and I also think that pleural malignancy can be more challenging as well. We know that particularly in mesothelioma, um, the diagnosis can be complex and there are often potential delays with non-diagnostic biopsy samples or cytology initially and the need for ongoing follow-up and sort of ongoing um, diagnostic delay just due to the challenges of making a, a histological diagnosis of mesothelioma in some patients. So um, I'm going to touch base um, on the kind of initial stages of the pathway and these are many of the basic things we all do all the time so thinking initially about imaging and clearly kind of point of care thoracic ultrasound has expanded hugely in the last few years not just in terms of um, targeting where we stick a needle to aspirate a pleural effusion but we're increasingly using it to evaluate pleural thickening perform ultrasound guided biopsies um, and assess suitability of a patient for thoracoscopy um, Another piece of very basic imaging that I would implore we all should be doing at that initial aspiration is performing a post-aspiration chest x-ray. When we're thinking about long-term effusion management, understanding whether a patient has non-expandable lung after a large volume thoracentesis is really, really important in helping them to, and you to guide your decision making around whether you're going to attempt a pleurodesis or whether um, other interventions such as an indwelling pleural catheter might be more appropriate. And then obviously patients need rapid access to um, CT imaging. Um, this um, data that's shown on the right of the screen is um, data from our own centre in Bristol that looked at kind of how extensive a CT you should perform in someone who presents with a new undiagnosed pleural effusion. Uh, traditionally, people have had a sort of just the thorax imaged, um, but I think our data really shows that imaging the abdomen and the pelvis is really, really important, particularly in women. 
Um, so this study looked at the number of um, um, additional CT findings that we found when we looked at um, the abdomen and pelvis. Um, and you can see that particularly in women, um, you're getting definite additional diagnostic um, information if you image the abdomen and pelvis as well. So 22% of women had um, significant findings within their pelvic um, CT, which if you'd only done the chest and upper abdomen, you'd have missed, um, obviously, particularly picking up um, gynecological malignancy. Um, so I think it's important to do a full staging chest update pelvis for these patients. Um, I would also say that traditionally, sometimes CTs were delayed until after someone had had a therapeutic um, aspiration to so get better views of the lung. And I would argue that that's really um, not necessary. I would say get on and do the CT. You could argue you get better views of the pleural surface um, if you still have the effusion present. Um, and in certain patients, if you are particularly interested to look at the lung, you may, you may repeat it. But the number of times that's really been necessary for me, it's been very small. So get that CT done as quickly as possible because it will help you shorten that diagnostic pathway. Um, I would also advise using a pleural face scan, so delay your image capture to, to ensure that your pleural enhancement is optimised. Um, and, oh, sorry, and in terms of cytology, um, as I say, this has been the kind of initial um, go-to uh, tool, but it's not brilliant um, at really getting a formal um, diagnosis in uh, many patients with pleural disease. We know that the adenocarcinomas in terms of ovarian, lung adeno, breast, GI malignancy give a higher cytological yield than certainly um, mesothelioma. And this data from, um, again, our own group really shows that um, if you have no previous history of cancer that would suggest a potential primary, and particularly if you have asbestos exposure, which puts you in a much higher um, risk group for mesothelioma, then really waiting for the cytology is not the right thing to do. And you really should consider just biopsying um, before you've got that full cytology result. Um, and this is really mirrored in um, data from uh, Glasgow, which has really, again, showed that the diagnostic yield of cytology is relatively low and particularly if we look for a kind of incomplete cytology in the era of needing um, and wanting more and more information on predictive markers and potential therapeutic targets um, a biopsy is really needed so uh, particularly if you have a malignant looking CT and previous asbestos exposure get on with your biopsy. I would advise that if um, sending fluid for flow cytometry in those with a high index of suspicion of malignancy can be helped to diagnose those um, hematological malignancies. Um, I think ultrasound-guided physician-based biopsies are expanding. This is some Oxford data that shows that in patients who've either had a failed thoracoscopy because you couldn't get into the pleural cavity, or if thoracoscopy was felt to be um, um, not possible, you can really get um, quite a good yield with physician-led ultrasound-guided biopsies. And again, if you can do these in an admission avoidance uh, type clinic, you can really help shorten the pathway. And I think interestingly, this, admittedly, this is a small study, but um, you don't necessarily need pleural thickening on CT or ultrasound to get a diagnosis of malignancy in this group, five out of 12 who had no pleural thickening to be seen, um, had ultimately an ultrasound-guided pleural biopsy from their mid-axillary line confirming malignancy. Um, so that's helpful. Um, so um, thoracoscopy, we've talked about the challenges of potentially only having a weekly list um, of um, uh, to, to really get access um, for patients quickly. Um, we're increasingly doing day case thoracoscopy. Um, and I think it's really helpful. I think biopsying from multiple sites is really important, particularly in mesothelioma, um, to identify those patients who may have biphasic disease. And increasingly, as kind of new dual immunotherapy hopefully comes online, um, it's going to be really particularly important to identify those patients. And we're doing more and more combined techniques, um, really highlighting the importance of those discussions right at the beginning about how patients want to manage their malignant pleural effusion. So combining um, the biopsy technique with talc, poudrage um, and, an, and or an IPC insertion. And the tactic trial is recruiting at present to see if combining all three techniques in one go um, helps uh, manage patients' um, effusions and improves the diagnostic pathway. 
So um, I've talked about this as we've gone along in terms of fluid management, but I think it is a lot of information for patients to take on board. We're describing often what a pleural effusion is, uh, what a thoracoscopy might be, the potential biopsy options, uh, what an IPC is, what non-expandable lung is. And these are all things that potentially need to be covered in a single consultation. So this is where pleural nurse specialists are valuable and having really good um, access to um, patient information is vital. Um, Matt and uh, Rahul Batnagar from Bristol um, have developed this brilliant uh, website which I would really really advise any of you to look at um, I tell all my patients about this um, it helps patients go away from the clinic and uh, do their own research into a lot of those topics um, with some really clear videos and explanations um, and I think it's really helped me in clinic uh, kind of get a lot of information across in a potentially short amount of time but really feeling that by the time a patient turns up for their thoracoscopy or their IPC they've got um, a good understanding of, um, of what's going on. I do think it's important to establish if someone has non-expandable lung as early as possible to help with that decision making and I think it's really important to manage their effusion in order to optimise their symptom control and improve their performance status prior potentially to embarking on systemic anti-cancer therapy. I also don't think we should disregard the real importance of personal preference um, when we're making decisions about fluid management for patients. Some people love the idea of an IPC, other people really don't. And we need to give patients ample time and information in order to process that information and decide what's right for them. So finally, this is a kind of summary slide. I'm aware I'm running a little bit over, but um, of what I think um, a kind of reactive plural um, diagnostic service looks like we need rapid access to plural nurses and administrators to get the pathway moving at the beginning to book that two-week wait plural phase CT and get somebody into a rapid um, plural clinic again to avoid a hospital admission. In that initial clinic we need to be covering the history and examination, they need a full ultrasound, um, potentially therapeutic aspiration, a plus or minus an ultrasound guided biopsy I think at that point, urgent cytology, a post-aspiration chest x-ray and loads of information about um, the potential choices moving forward in terms of effusion management and alongside that we need the um, CT quickly, we need to decide what our optimal biopsy site is going to be and then just get directly to the biopsy, direct to LAT, direct to an ultrasound guided biopsy, potentially direct uh, and uh, maybe a CT guided biopsy and then a rapid MDT discussion with all of that um, information because we know that the pathways are not always straightforward for these patients so we want to get on, get the information um, and help plan their effusion management strategy early. So I think that's me finished a couple of minutes late. Apologies, Matt, um, but really happy to take any questions. Thanks very much, Millie. No, you were spot on with timings. Um, so thanks for all the speakers, actually, for being re really close to their timing. It's, it's given us a good bit of time for some Q&A. Uh, so if I just ask the other speakers just to pop their cameras on um, and we'll... Uh, uh, I'll go through a few of the questions that have been posed and maybe just in turn of the, uh, as we had the talks. Uh, so Sam, um, we had a question through that says, will there be any progress in radiomics to diagnose cancer? Uh, I think there will be. We're, we're, a, long, we're a long way off because so currently we're at a stage where I think, you know, it's a CAD it's called. It can pick up whether there's a nodule or not, but um, often nodules are missed by CAD. You know, so you need that radiologist, you know, nodules hiding in recesses and things like that often don't get picked up. So I think where we are now, it definitely makes reporting far more efficient and quicker. But I think where we need to get to is that predictive um, AI, i.e. there's a nodule here, what's the chances of it being malignant or not? And I think, you know, how, how are we going to get there? Surely at some point, I think it's going to be have to link to the type of histology you've got for your, for your nodules. That's the only way you know. And, if you know, therefore you have to somehow find a way to amalgamate your biopsy data with your nodule data. And actually it's not about your biopsy data on huge, large masses in the lung. It's about the biopsy data on the tiny little nodules. So you, you'll know at Manchester, and I'm sure, you, you know, you, you're doing lots of tiny little nodule biopsies. You need to try and feed that information into, into an algorithm or whatever to produce that but I think I think it will come but I think we may be you know we're, we're probably a longer way off than most people think like it's not yeah. going to be it's not going to be appearing anytime soon it's going to need a lot of work and a lot of input and okay. the question is you know autonomous versus non-autonomous and 
perhaps it will come yeah if, if the data being fed in is good enough and that's the thing you, you can only output the data that you're feeding in um so if the data going in is good and accurate then the output will be accurate and if it isn't it won't be so it's going to be reliant on that i think um the other question is about um so i like i'm com complete convert to everything that you've said in your uh, in your talk um that it is the standard of care to get preoperative histology for, for all the reasons you outlined mm. uh, not everyone does think like that um, and one of the things that's equally created a lot of discussion is the um, paper in the last 12 months about pleural recurrence after image-guided biopsy and whether there's yeah. a higher rate of pleural recurrence from, from image-guided biopsy. Do you, how, how do you think as a community we kind of respond to that data? And uh, Yeah, I, I, I've looked at that paper actually and it doesn't, it doesn't I, don't, I haven't seen any plural recurrences of the biopsies we've done, so it doesn't seem to fit right. So the question is, what size of needle are they using? Yeah. And, and when I read that paper, surely, with rationale, surely, therefore, the result, surely, therefore, the recurrence rate of plural vats would be higher because they're using massive scopes and going in. But we don't have any data to show that there's a higher recurrence of plural vats. So I think it's a paper written um by people who probably have another agenda in terms of doing more i don't know vats more 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 ebus or whatever i don't think that's accurate and i you know we've got i'm sure at manchester you've got great colleagues and i don't think i've seen us you know apart from mesothelioma yeah. yeah i don't think i've ever seen a plural recurrence from a lung nodule biopsy even through the fissure yeah in over i think i've done over three thousand lung biopsies so yeah. that probably conflicts that data yeah and even in mesothelioma the chances of a, a you know a trap mm. metastasis relating to a biopsy i think is tiny mm. we see them much more commonly in those big procedure sites you know in the surgical biopsies the ipcs yeah there i have seen it but yeah that hasn't, yeah, been, but that hasn't been published <laughs> i think that's most of the, the conclusions where i've seen this discussed about some of the limitations of uh of, of where the data was um mm. always good to, to ask that um lisa uh, i'm just going to move on to and discuss the um the single q stuff so i i mean because i've got a question um that i think is just it's really topical that this subject feeds into that um, it is a time where things are starting to think differently about how we deliver services. And so we've got a GERF report coming and other such things that are going to talk about cancer alliances taking a much more uh, leadership role in terms of capacity and demand management. And the cancer alliances are going to become the, the cancer arm of the ICSs. But change can be resisted. Uh, and it's how, how do you think we can try and navigate those difficulties of a cancer alliance and individual hospitals working together as a system to try and deliver benefits and change it's not an easy aspect um i think that that we've got organizations that you know that are concerned about losing services or being taken over um so the, there's a real sensitivity about it um, i think though that the data speaks for itself you, you really can't argue with putting the patient first um, and actually opening up access and capacity for patients um, and using our patient voices, I think probably one of the key aspects. Um, the, I think from the pilot that we did, one of the really important aspects was the patient feedback. Um, that is the bit that speaks volumes. You can't argue with it. So I think my approach um, with, with some of this is absolutely about putting the patient first um, and using some of that information to, to really galvanise um, support through our, um, you know, our, our user involvement groups, etc. Um, and for me, you know, using data is one of the, the key aspects and, and it's been underutilized certainly in Greater Manchester and I'm sure elsewhere um, but disaggregated data about key milestones um, uh, and being able to really see that variation I think is a really important factor and that for me will be the elements that drive um, above and beyond people's um, individual um, viewpoints I think um, we, we will no longer be able to hide um, the inequalities aspects with the data that for me is, is crucial. Brilliant. Uh, Sam I was going to ask um, 
so this single cube pilot that we've done for ebus ebus lends itself really nicely to it because it's a really standardized procedure um i don't think there's 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 very little debate about who needs an ebus and uh, the ability to do it people just can turn up to a list and say yeah this person's having an ebus lung barks is very different in terms of uh, operator skill and um we're, we're we're desperate to see if this this system could support lung biopsy pathways and improve the access to it. But there are just certain different, different challenges. Um, do you ever see some a system like this working with lung biopsy? Could you see a time where a, a patient is booked onto your list without, uh, constant, you know, without a, a, a vetting process of that suitable for a biopsy? Or is, is everything so suitable for you that... Uh, yeah, that, that would be a dream. We have got there. So um, I think we very rarely reject any biopsy unless, you know, unless it's next to an aorta or something, but I still find those patients because we, we get them, we, you know, sometimes you might get the odd one that has slipped through and turns up, but I, I I'm the type of radiologist. I, I, before a biopsy, I sit, sit the patient down in front of a workstation and I show them where their lesion is and where the needle is going to go. And sometimes I show them why I can't do that biopsy if it has come through um, like that. And they, they appreciate that because they understand. And actually that decision sometimes is that that discussion is better from the radiologist because where it helps me the most is it helps me instruct the patient in terms of their breathing instruction, how they can help me get a successful biopsy. But often patients where I can say to them and I say, you know, actually the, the risk benefit of me poking a needle and tickling your aorta is bigger than... Um, the, the benefit we may get from providing a diagnosis, but by being able to actually show them the images, I don't mind that odd patient coming through. So I think in our service, what you're suggesting would work because generally speaking, our oncologists, and I'm sure you're you know, very skilled and our respiratory physicians, because of the MDTs, they have a fairly good idea of what we can and can't biopsy. Generally they do. So it doesn't always need that formal process of vetting. And what you could do is just siphon off the tricky ones. And that's what we try and do and just have a separate little MDT to say EBUS or lung biopsy. And you almost have an EBUS versus lung biopsy MDT, which is really, really helpful. Um, and then you can, I always say about EBUS and lung biopsy, they're not mutually exclusive. Actually, they go very well together. And that's the best way of doing it. Cause ultimately it's about what is the best test for the patient to get the diagnosis with only one procedure and i don't think we sit down in a room in a separate setting we, we do in lung cancer mdts but not in a separate setting for those few cases to decide should we be doing ebus should we be doing lung biopsy or do we need to do both i think that would be something that enhances our our mdts although it would be another new mdt real uh millie um some questions about the um, specifically in the lung cancer pathway. So I think probably based off some of the uh, national lung cancer audit data, so when they did the spotlight audit into molecular, into predictive markers, the kind of the red flag was pleural fluid about failure of tests. Uh, so not just the cytology challenges, you said, actually lung cancer is quite a high sensitivity in the, in the graph you showed. But if ability, you've got adenocarcinoma, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, the ability to do predictive markers on those, I think it, there's real concerns about pleural fluid and the frequency of failure. So if you're in a setting of, um, of a, a scan that looks like lung cancer with accessible disease-like uh, uh, nodes in an EBUS, uh, and what looks to be a malignant effusion. Uh, sometimes that pathway can be a diagnostic tap first. Do you ever either go straight for pleural biopsy, do a, a fluid and nodal sampling at the same time? Uh, is it, I guess what I'm asking is, is it ever appropriate just to do a diagnostic tap uh, in, in what looks to be lung cancer? So I think the times that I would do that would be in a patient of a poor performance status who you think isn't going to be suitable potentially for systemic treatment, um, whereby you're wanting to manage the effusion and see how good you can get their performance status, um, where kind of symptom control is going to be your priority. Certainly in a group where you're wanting, you know, a you, there will be um, suitable for treatment then absolutely um, and I think you know it's something that we're not really doing in our service yet but I think we ought to be doing ultrasound guided biopsies even if they don't have pleural thickening at the same through the same hole that you're going to be doing a therapeutic aspiration 
you don't give them any more lignocaine it's not a much more invasive procedure and you just do that at the at the outset um as a kind of initial test and then potentially even before you've had a ct scan depending on how that fits with it you know whether you're seeing them pre or post ct um to really get things going at the beginning of the pathway um but you know absolutely moving on and you know doing thoracoscopy it particularly if you're offering those other things at the same time in terms of talc or an ipc at the same time you know you can get tissue very easily without um putting the patient through a much more invasive procedure i would say yeah well uh, and just one i think we've probably got time for one last question for, uh, for millie as well um the small pleural effusion without any features of malignancy and it's the key to staging um very often approaches is mdts give benefit of the doubt yeah uh, any thoughts on that that tricky situation of the small effusion indeterminate effusion so i think it's really difficult i think it's something that um kevin um, and selena are potentially looking at um in glasgow actually doing a study to see if doing thoracoscopies on these patients to really um sort of get as much sort of um, information as possible is going to be helpful i think it is difficult because i even think a low anesthetic thoracoscopy you know you could easily miss a small pleural lesion in a in the apex and inaccessible part of the of the pleural cavity so i don't think even that's going to be perfect um obviously trying to get some cytology if possible and if it's safe you know i i, I we certainly don't biopsy them all um I think we're still in the benefit of the doubt camp, but yeah. uh, you know, I think it's an area that hopefully we'll get some more data on and that will be really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, the stratify study. I, that, yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I, I really hope that that sheds some light on, on what's a difficult uh, scenario. Yeah. Okay. So we're at half past six. So I think we'll, we'll draw the webinar to a close. So uh, thank you to all the three speakers. Brilliant talks. Um, I learned a lot myself, uh, wrote a lot down <laughs> to, uh, to reflect on myself. Uh, so thanks very much. I just want to finish. Um, there might just be a slide to bring up. So I do want to highlight the next webinar uh, that BTOG are running, which is a masterclass uh, in mesothelioma. Um, and I think that is on the 27th of April at the same time. Uh, so please do join us for that. Um, okay. So thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Thanks again to our speakers. I hope you've enjoyed it. Okay. Thanks. <laughs>